And if you would open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. We are today going to finish the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew 7, verses 13 all the way to 29. I'll give you a minute to turn there in your Bibles. Matthew 7, starting in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits." Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. For every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits." Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Science fiction writer Jack Finney wrote a short story in the mid-1900s called Of Missing Persons. The story is about a man named Charles, a disgruntled banker who was dissatisfied with the monotony of his life, and he was looking for a permanent escape. Through the suggestion of a friend, he visited the Acme Travel Bureau. He was told of a planet called Verna. Verna was paradise. The pictures showed a place of vibrant color, bright sun, rolling hills, unspoiled forests, pure streams, and pristine beaches. The people were happy, working but not tired, old and young, smiling and laughing together. The look on their face was of permanent rest, exactly what Charles was looking for. He inquired of the man at the desk. He persisted on going to this planet called Verna, and the man was questioning his sincerity. He told him, you must be certain. 
We want no one there who won't be happy. It's a non-transferable, one-way ticket. Charles said, I'll go. How much? The man said, it will cost you everything. That is, everything that's in your pocket right now. So Charles pulled out $11.17 and slid it across the table in exchange for a golden ticket. Now he took that ticket to the Acme Depot and waited with others for 20 minutes until a small, battered bus pulled up. This was not the means of travel Charles was expecting. But he went along with the others and he boarded the bus. The bus drove for hours off of Manhattan and towards Long Island. This is not the direction that Charles expected to go. The bus stopped at an old rugged barn in the middle of nowhere and the driver ushered the people inside of the barn. This is not the location Charles expected to go to. The driver ushered them into the barn, sat them on an old wooden bench in the dark, said, wait here, and closed the barn door behind him as he left. Then Charles began to think, have I been duped? Was this a trick? Is Verna just a fantastic and absurd fable? You know, I wonder if you, along with, other, uh, along with other Christians, wonder the same thing. Is heaven real? Or is it just a fantastic and absurd fable? Certainly the way to get to heaven is not as glitzy and glamorous as people make it out to be. It's hard. Life is hard, filled with unexpected twists and turns, trials and tribulations. Maybe you've asked these questions. How can I know I'm on the right path? How do I know who to trust in this life? And can I really be sure of my eternal destiny? Well, Jesus answers these questions at the end of his sermon in Matthew chapter 7. This is an epic conclusion. Each of these passages can be taken in parts. They're they're rich theologically and in applicational breadth. But I'm going to preach them all together. Because I want you to feel the full force, the total weight of Jesus' epic conclusion. He's a preacher. He's driving at something here that we must take away. If you look through all of these passages, you'll see each of them is divided into two. Divided into two. You have one right way, and then you have one wrong way. You have good people, and you have bad people. Finally, you have a destiny of life, or a destiny of destruction. And so I've outlined his conclusion this way. Two ways, two people, and two final destinations. I ask you today, are you on the right path? How can you know who to trust along the way? And what is your eternal destiny? Your destination. First in your outline, two ways. 
two ways. Look all the way back to verse 13. The first sentence is clear. It's a command. It says, enter by the narrow gate. The command to enter implies action. You've got to move. You've got to respond in some way. It's not enough to look at this gate. It's not enough to think about it. It's not enough to fantasize about one day walking through. Jesus commands a response now. Enter. And he tells you which way you're looking for. He says, enter the narrow gate. Now, it's important to say at this point that Jesus is using a metaphor. He's not talking about a literal gate or a literal road in Israel. He's talking about a spiritual gate, a spiritual road to look for. And that's important because as Jesus describes this gate in this way, you know that their physical characteristics are alluding to spiritual ones. Matters that we need to take into consideration. So let's look at the consideration or the, uh, the characteristics here. Let's look at the first gate. The first gate, you'll notice, is wide. Do you see that? Verse 13, for the gate is wide. Now a wide gate is an inviting gate. It's a spacious point of entry. You can fit anything you want through this gate. All your possessions, all your people. Think about the spiritual correlation here. A wide gate is a very inclusive gate. Come one, come all. Come as you are with all that you have is the motto. So walking through this door is not going to cost you anything. You can keep your idols. You can keep your sin. You can keep your friends and your family. The point of entry is made as spiritually comfortable and inclusive as possible. It doesn't matter what you believe or how you live your life. You're invited. Walk through the wide gate. And it gets better. The way is easy. Look down at the text. The gate is wide and the way is easy. This road is an easy road. It has no bumps. No hills, no surprises. You know what that means? You control the pace. My favorite video games to play as a kid were the ones where you can control the difficulty level of your enemy. Some of you might be familiar with this. You control how good the computer boss is. Why did I like that? Because I like to win. And I wanted to ensure that I could make it as difficult as I wanted it to be so that I would win the game. Listen, when you make your own rules, when you set your own pace spiritually, you're essentially creating your own religion. The phrase, you know, believe whatever works for you, that is an invitation to play God and control the level of difficulty in your life. So you can make it as easy as you want it to be. Whatever rules you want to follow, go ahead. This is an easy road. You can coast, you can run, you can walk. It's easy. Thirdly, the third characteristic here, as you'll see at the end of verse 13, those who enter by it are many. Those who enter by it are many. So you are with the many. You'll find yourself with the majority, with the crowd on this road. Meaning, you're going to win a lot of friends and you'll lose very few. Under the guise of progress, 
You'll follow, or sorry, you'll flow with the changing tides of the culture, all its trends, philosophies, religious systems, economy, technologies. This is the road that is with the world, with the many. Now, with these three characteristics, you have to admit there's a tinge of attraction here, isn't there? This is an attractive road. There's some immediate gratification if you walk through this door. But you need to notice that in the middle there, this road leads to destruction. The end is not good for the travelers on this road. It might be immediately satisfying, but it will be eternally damning. So there's the warning. Remember, this is not the way that Christ commanded you to take. He said, enter the narrow gate. So let's look at the second gate and the second road. First of all, it's narrow. The Greek word used here literally means constricted, pressing in from both sides. You know what that means? You don't come in with the crowd, you come in one at a time. It means you have to leave your spiritual baggage at the door. Can't come in with your goods, with your people. Can't bring whatever you want. You come in essentially spiritually naked with nothing. You have to first let go of your pride. Jesus said in the beginning of this sermon, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So your pride has got to go. Any sense that you think you're good enough to come in, that has got to be dropped. Then comes the rest of your sin, the hidden sin in your heart, the lust, the anger, the jealousy, the covetousness, and then those idols that you cling to, those possessions that you love so much, even the people. You may need to give up friends and family to walk through this gate. Jesus doesn't say, come as you are and bring your baggage. He says, come having counted the cost and ready to sell everything. It's the narrow gate. Secondly, you'll notice it's a hard way. The way is hard that leads to life. Verse 14. This is no walk in the park. There are bumps on this road. There might even be difficult obstacles to traverse. Steep hills to climb. Contrary to many preachers today, following Jesus doesn't make your life easier. That's a lie. In fact, in many ways, it makes it harder. You'll run into trouble. You'll run into trial. You'll even run into persecution in this life. Life is hard. Following Jesus doesn't make it easier, quote-unquote. In fact, here's what you do at the door. You lay aside all your spiritual baggage, and guess what you pick up? You pick up a cross, and you're carrying that the rest of the way. Just like the man that you follow. Just like your master. So the way is hard, and thirdly, you're with the few. You're not with the crowds on this road. You're not with the majority. You'll find yourself in the minority. You might get lonely on this road. Your faith is not going to be well received by the world. They'll actually hate it. They'll attack you, malign you, despise you, make fun of you. They might even crucify you, just like the man you follow. Those who find it are few, Jesus says. But this, look at the middle of 14, this 
is the gate and the road that leads to life. What is Jesus getting at with this metaphor here? These two roads, these two gates. This is what he's getting at. The way of salvation, listen, is exclusive. It's exclusive. There are not many ways to heaven. You're on one of two roads. You've entered one or one of two gates. But there is only one door, one way, one choice that is right and that leads to life. Jesus said in John 10.9, hear this, Jesus said, I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. John 3.16, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. John 14.6, Jesus makes it clear, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So listen, friends, the door, the way, the truth, and the life is a person. It's Jesus Christ. In Him alone. Christ alone. Solus Christus. And to enter through that door, think about the metaphor here, to enter through that door is faith. To trust Christ alone. To walk through that door, you have to lay aside any self-righteousness, any, again, thought or attitude or belief system that makes you think that your good works earn you heaven. They don't. You've got to lay that aside. Your righteousness, your good works outside of Christ are like filthy rags. They don't earn you the right to walk through that door. So you have to lay aside that. You have to lay aside your idols, the possessions and the people that you hold more dearly than Christ Himself. You got to lay that aside. You got to turn from your sin and wholly embrace Jesus Christ as the only way that you would be saved. That's what it means to enter the door, to trust in Him and Him alone. And so you find yourself walking through that door alone, spiritually naked, and holding the cross. So let me ask you, have you entered the narrow gate? Have you done that? Are you truly following Jesus Christ alone? Trusting in Him for your salvation. See, too many people say this. You know, I'll take Jesus seriously later in my life. I've got time. I'm young. I'll think about that later. That's not the right response to Jesus' call. Jesus says, enter now. Enter by the narrow gate. The call comes to you now and it demands A response. Now walking through that door is just the beginning. It really is. The journey of life on earth as a Christian starts with your conversion and trusting yourself to Jesus Christ. But guess what? You're stuck here for a little while. As long as God wants you here. And so you're going to continue to walk the hard way And you're going to interact with a variety of people along the way. You know, John Bunyan illustrates this masterfully in his book, Pilgrim's Progress. Christian, his main character, he walks through the wicked gate, the narrow gate, and rids himself of the burden at the very beginning of the story. And then along the way, he interacts with all kinds of characters, good, bad, deceitful, sincere. And so the question is, how do we know? How do we know who we can trust? 
who the good guys and the bad guys are along the way in life, the Christian life? Jesus answers that question in the second part. Number two, there are two people, essentially, in this life. Two people. Good trees and bad trees. Okay? Good trees and bad trees. Jesus starts the next section with another strong command. He says, beware of false prophets. Beware. Watch out for false prophets. Now, a prophet is supposed to be a mouthpiece for God. They're supposed to speak God's words. His spokesman. But these are called false prophets. In the Greek, it literally reads pseudo-prophets. They're fakers. They're liars. They don't speak for God, but they speak against Him. They twist His words. And any deviation from the truth is a lie. And so it's important for you to beware of these guys and sometimes girls because their teaching is destructive and it's misleading. Second Peter says they secretly bring in destructive heresies. It'll destroy. They even deny the Master, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And you must beware because they are sneaky. They're sneaky. And Jesus warns you of this. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. This is the classic fairy, fairy tale story. The wolf disguising himself, right? So that he can get his prey. See, more dangerous than a wolf that you can spot from afar and attacks from the outside is a wolf that can disguise himself, get on the inside, and attack from within. That's more dangerous. And that's how these wolves operate. That's how these prophets operate. So we must beware. We must watch out. How can we know who is who? How can we discern? Jesus tells us twice. Look down. Verse 16 and 20. He says, you will recognize them by their fruits. You will recognize them by their fruits. Here is the universal principle. Write this down in your notes if you're taking them. The heart comes out. Write that down. Take that away. The heart comes out. It does. Internal intentions always leak out and manifest external evidence. It's how we were made. The heart comes out. Jesus illustrates this with a very simple, tried and true farming illustration. I was in the Central Valley this summer preaching at a, a youth event, and there are a bunch of farmers in the Central Valley of California. And in fact, I was talking to the son of one of the farmers. His, his dad, along with the, the brothers, owned family tree farms. Next time that you are at the supermarket and buying stone fruit, apricots, plums, whatever, look at the label and see if it says family tree farms. They distribute all over the nation. Costco's everywhere. It's pretty cool. So they own this, this farming business, and I was talking to the son, and he said this, I don't know how, he said, I don't know how you can be a farmer and not a Christian. He said, if you follow the teachings of Jesus in your farming, you'll be successful. It's as if Jesus was himself a farmer. In fact, I would think if we didn't know he was a carpenter, he's probably a farmer or a fisherman. Or, you know, anything else, because he's really good at everything. But he is the ultimate farmer, and, and this is just common sense farming here. Common sense. Two rhetorical questions he asks. The first is this. 
are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? So I ask you, do you pluck grapes off of thorn bushes? What do grapes grow on? Vines. Second question, or are figs gathered from thistles? Thistles are prickly weeds, common in the land of Canaan. Do figs grow on weeds? No. What do figs grow on? Trees. Here's the principle. Here's the principle. Jesus says it in verse 17 and 18. Every healthy tree bears good fruit, kin according to kin. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Jesus uses this metaphor to illustrate a spiritual reality. Trees produce fruit according to their kind. Also, the health of the tree determines the quality of the fruit that it produces. You will recognize them by their fruits, their attitudes, their words, their actions, their ministry is all external evidence that reveals their internal intentions. The heart comes out. And so, as you walk your way and come across a kind, a kinds of prophets, preachers, or even people, look at the evidence in their life. What kind of fruit are they producing? That will tell you what kind of tree they are, good or bad. Now, Galatians 5 gives us a helpful list of what are the fruits of the flesh and then what are the fruits of the Spirit. What kind of things am I looking for? Now, you look up on the, the screen, there's the text, Galatians 5, 19 to 21. These are the works of the flesh. And maybe some of those sins pop out at you right away. The sins of sexual immorality. Maybe a sin as bad as sorcery. Maybe fits of anger. Wow, that's bad. Drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. But I want you to notice those sins that are tucked in there that you and I deal with every day. How about sensuality? How about idolatry? How about enmity? How about envy? Are those sins that you struggle with? Deal with? Are those the attitudes that leak out naturally of your life? I'll tell you what, those were the attitudes that leaked out of the false prophet and the false teacher, and the hypocrites of Israel. See, they could keep the big sins in order, but those little attitudes of the heart that came out, their jealousy, their pride, their idolatry, it would not stay hidden. It indicted them. So check your heart. Check your life. Do you display this kind of fruit, or go to the next slide, the fruit of the Spirit? Look at this list. You're going to notice a few things. First, love is first. Love is preeminent. The pulse of the Christian is love. You're looking for vital signs? Look for love. Sacrificial, selfless, counting others is more important than yourself. Love. This is the preeminent fruit. The next thing you'll notice is that all of these fruits of the Spirit, they start with heart attitudes and manifest in external uh, words and actions. And they can't be faked for a long time. You're, it's going to be pretty evident that joy is not sincere if you put that person through a trial or they hit diff difficult times in life. It's going to be pretty 
obvious at some point that faithfulness isn't there. These are internal attitudes that manifest in actions and words. Finally, you're going to hopefully notice something that is so clear. There is a person that is the epitome of these things. That's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the epitome of love. Jesus Christ is the epitome of joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so as you are manifesting these fruits, you're displaying evidence that you're following a person, and that person is Jesus. To produce good fruit then, listen, is to speak and walk and produce other followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Beware of prophets or people who teach a different doctrine that doesn't accord with Jesus. Beware of prophets or people who talk about Jesus, who teach the right doctrine, but there's no evidence of it in their life, in the workplace, in their families, in their relationships. Finally, beware of prophets and people who amass friends and followers that deviate from Him. Do they look like Jesus? Are they conforming into His image? Are they producing fruit that accords with the man you follow, Jesus Christ? There are only two kinds of people in this world, good trees and bad trees. What fruit do they produce? There are those in Christ and there are those outside of Christ. So the first question you should ask yourself is, who am I? Am I a good tree or am I a bad tree? You know that. Hopefully the Spirit bears witness with your conscience and you know who you are. Second question is this. Who influences you? Who influences you? Who do you watch? Who do you read? Who do you listen to online? Good trees or bad trees? Watch out. Beware of those bad trees that produce bad fruit. You'll recognize them by their fruit. So we have two ways, two people, and ultimately there are two destinations. And that's where Jesus is driving here. Point number three, two destinations. At the end of his sermon, Jesus lands the plane with two scenes. Okay? Two scenes. One is a real event that is going to happen. The second is another metaphor to describe what determines our destiny. So let's look first at the real event, verses 21 to 23. Jesus says, on that day, you see that? Look at verse 22. On that day. He's describing an event on a day. What is that event? What is that day. Well, it's, it's judgment day. It's judgment day. That's clear in this text. Jesus makes it even more clear in Matthew 25, later in the gospel. Jesus, look at verse 21, is deciding who will enter the kingdom of heaven. And they call him Lord, Lord. They're recognizing that Jesus is on the judgment seat here. Who's the judge? Jesus. See, we in this life can discern fruit. We can look at the lives and the actions and the words of people and kind of know 
kind of have a sense as to which who they belong to, whether they're a good tree or a bad tree. But there is only one, listen, there is only one who determines eternal destiny. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who sits on the judgment seat. He's the one that you need to convince. He's the one that you need to be right with. He's the one that you must know. Like I said, he talks about this day in more detail in Matthew 25. He says, the Son of Man will come again in glory. He'll sit on his glorious throne and he will separate the sheep from the goats. This is the end of the age. All roads stop here before the final destination. This is a real day, a real event. Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. This is a day every single person in this room will face. And remember, you won't face it with your friends, you won't face it with your parents, you won't face it with your family, you will face it alone. You will face Him alone. Do you know Him? Jesus has been driving at this all along. He said at the beginning of the section, there is a way that leads to life and there's a way that leads to destruction. There are trees that bear good fruit and they live. But look at verse 19. Every tree that does not bear fruit goes where? It's cut down and thrown into the fire. Now Jesus gets more direct. He says, some will hear from me, come enter the kingdom of heaven, and others will hear from me, depart from me, I never knew you. You workers of lawlessness. Matthew 25 adds, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That is the bad tree, the professor, the fake convert's destiny. Jesus draws the sword. Jesus divides. He is the judge. And I want you to notice something. This passage is scary. It's very scary. It's very scary because you know why? Jesus is not dividing between religious people and non-religious people. Jesus is not dividing between the church and the world, the Christian and the pagan. Jesus divides professing Christians. These people that Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. Notice, they hear the words of Jesus. They hear him speak. They read him in their Bibles. They know enough to call him Lord. They call him Lord, Lord. They know who he is. Also, they're recognized for doing good works. Look at all the things that they do. Man, they are prophesying in the name of Christ. They're casting out demons in his name. They're doing many mighty works in his name. Have you prophesied? Have you cast out a demon? Would you describe the works that you've done in your life as mighty works? These people do. And finally, this is what is probably most scary. They identify with Jesus Christ. They do these things in His name. They call themselves Christians. In the Gallup poll, they check the box that says Christian. You probably find these people in church on a Sunday morning. 
These people might be in small groups. These people even volunteer throughout the week. These people are in this room, in this congregation. This is a heavy, heavy passage. And this is what the Lord says to these kinds of people. He says, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. How sad. What a shame to live your whole life thinking you have relationship with God. But then on that day to hear him say, I never knew you. Think about this. Those are the words of ultimate betrayal. How awful would you feel if a friend that you've known for years goes to other people in another conversation, looks back at you and says, yeah, I don't really know them. Betrayal. Heartbreaking. Think about it. These are the words that Peter said about Christ on the night of his trial. Peter told three times, I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. And then he locks eyes with the Lord. How do you think that made Peter feel? How do you think that made the Lord feel? Ultimate relational betrayal. These words cut the heart in half. Nobody wants to show up on that day and hear from their maker, I never knew you. So, let me ask you these questions. First of all, do you know Christ? Do you know Him? Are you familiar? Do you know who He is? Do you know what He's done to save sinners? Do you know the Gospel? The fact that He humbled Himself to become a man? lived a perfect life, the perfect life you couldn't live, and loved sinners enough to endure the humiliation, the shame, the despising, even the crucifixion. He died on the cross, and He did that to atone for your sins, to take your place, to suffer in your place. And then this Jesus Christ, the champion, He rose from the dead three days later, declaring power and victory over sin and death to offer you salvation, to offer you new life, to offer you eternal life if you would follow Him. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is King of kings, Lord of lords. He's coming back to judge. Do you know Him? Are you familiar? More than that, can you say, do you know Him personally? Closer than a brother. Closer than your spouse, even a friend. Do you talk to Him? Do you spend time with Him? Do you think about Him? And then ask yourself this question, can you say with confidence, because of these things, He knows me? That's the real question. Does He know you? Will He say to you on that day, come, enter the kingdom that my Father's prepared for you? Or will He say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus says it's not enough to just hear his words, but he says the one who does, did you miss that? Does the will of my Father enters the kingdom of heaven. We must be a doer of his words. We must respond. Your doing determines your destiny. Now hear this. I'm not advocating a works-based gospel here. It's not that your works earn heaven, 
but your faith, trusting in Christ, is the proper response. So you entrust yourself to Him and His call. And the evidence of that is by doing and applying what He says. So faith produces works. It does. Again, remember, the heart comes out. And so the external evidence is the works, but what has happened to you internally is that you've trusted Christ and Him alone for salvation. And do you do what Christ says? Have you responded to His words? And this is where this final metaphor leads us. This is His conclusion. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. The wise man hears the words of Christ and applies them. He is a doer of the word. He responds by faith and the evidence is clear, produces good fruit. Now, every contractor will know that your building is only as good as your foundation, the foundation that it lays upon. It's very important for that to be firm, stable, right? What is the foundation of the Christian life? To not only hear the words of Christ, but to respond and do them. This is all across the Bible. Jesus said in John 14, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he's the one who loves me. 1 John 2.3 By this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. James 1, be doers of the word, not hearers only. The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of Christ, the law of liberty, and perseveres, not a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Is that you? Have you responded to the word of Christ? And by the way, it's not just the stuff in red letters. All scripture is breathed out by God. Christ is God. So do you Hear and apply the Word of God. Do you read this? Do you know this? Do you treasure it? Do you meditate upon it? And then do you walk it out in your life, seeking to apply it? Again, it's not enough to come in and hear a sermon and walk away and say, oh, that was convicting. But nothing changes. Jesus is saying, are you a doer? Is that the evident fruit in your life? Because here's the warning. The doer will be blessed in his doing, James says. Christ says, if you're simply a hearer, And not a doer, you're cursed and destroyed. Just like this foolish man who built his house on the sand. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. We all know, we don't have to be contractors to know that's a bad foundation. And so the rain fell, the floods came, the wind blew and beat against that house And it fell, and great was the fall of it. Listen, the storms of this life, the trials, can be enough to knock your faith over. It can. You've heard this new trend of deconstructionism, right? People are walking away from the church because of a traumatic church experience. They're walking away from their faith altogether. And for some of you, this is enough for you to throw in the towel and for your house to fall down. But listen... I think that the real destruction Jesus is talking about here, the great fall, as he puts it in 27, is not the storms of this life, but it's the storm of God's wrath on Judgment Day. That will be a great fall. That will be a great fall. 
And that is the destination for those who walk through the wide gate, who stroll on the easy road. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Titus 1.16. These are the ones who hear the words of Christ. Depart from me, I never knew you. Their end is destruction. That's one destiny. But the other destiny is preservation and life. There's a road that leads to life. There's a gate that you must walk through to get there. It's the narrow gate. There's the good trees who produce good fruits. They not only hear the words of Christ, they only say the right things, but they do it. They apply it in their life. They're serious about the word. They take sermons seriously. They take their Bible study seriously because they need to have it flushed out in their living. And they're speaking. And they will grow to conform into the image of the master that they follow. Two ways, two people, two destinations. When Jesus finished these sayings, verse 28, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. He was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. I want you to know that this is not an interesting TED talk from Jesus. Jesus is not like the philosophers of his age, pontificating theories. He's not like the Pharisees who teach without authority. The king is preaching. He's warning. He's exhorting you in the truth. His landing point is explicitly clear. You have one life, friend. One life. And then comes death. And then comes judgment. Make sure you enter the narrow gate. Make sure. Check your life. Do you look like the wise man or the fool? Do you look like the good tree or the bad? Do you look like these people who profess and fake and think they know Christ, but they don't? Have you entered the narrow gate? Back to Charles, the banker. Charles sat on that wood bench in the old dilapidated barn, surrounded by strangers, and he became upset furious. We've been tricked, he raged. How could I be so gullible to believe such an absurd and fantastic tale as a planet called Verna? He got up from the bench, he swung open the barn door, and just as he turned around to slam it shut, he noticed just a flash of light. And as you know, it only takes a second to see an entire scene. Inside the barn, The scenery was radically transforming. Those who sat there stood up in awe and wonder. The walls began to fall. Light burst into the room. The scenery of Verna was appearing through the windows. Only from the inside could you see it. But before Charles could stop the door, in his rage, the power of his swing slammed it shut. In panic. He tried to reopen it quickly and found the scene inside the same as when he first arrived, except the people on the wooden bench were gone. It was dark, musty, just a dilapidated barn. Well, he rushed back to the travel bureau. He rushed back and he tried to convince the man that he was deserving of another try. He explained what happened and he pleaded for a second chance And the travel agent 
pulled out the $11.17. He slid it across the table and said, you left this here the other day and I, I don't know why. Charles is recounting the story to another man at a bar and he says to him, make up your mind and stick to it because you won't get another chance. I know because I've tried, I've tried, and I've tried. One life, friend. One door. One way. One truth. Will you follow Jesus? Let's pray. Father, I ask by your power, your strength, your mercy, and your grace that you would work in souls this morning. I pray that you would open the eyes of the professors here today who think they know you, but they don't. I pray that they would entrust themselves to Christ and Christ alone for salvation. They would be willing to surrender their idols, surrender their comforts, even surrender the thought of that they're good enough, their self-righteousness, that they would embrace Christ and him alone as the only righteous one the only one who could earn their salvation, and that they would enter through the narrow gate. God, I pray for those of us who do believe, who do have relationship with you, Christ, that we would be eternally grateful, thankful for the work of Christ in the gospel, that we would see the urgency to tell our family and friends of the one way, the truth, that we would go out and be evangelists with this truth knowing that there's only one way of salvation. We wouldn't be comfortable or content knowing our, our friends and family, they're walking down the wrong road. Pray that you'd give us just a zeal and an urgency to go after them with the truth. In Jesus' name, amen.